You're listening to Of Slights and Men with Benji and Jacob. A Daily Magician Production. Hello, and welcome back to Of Slights and Men. Uh, I'm very excited to be, well, I'm, first of all, I'm alone once more. I'll probably just stop saying it because I don't think Benji's going to be able to make many of these podcasts uh, now that he's in Macedonia. Uh, but it's just me, uh, which is, is nice because I get to ask all the questions that I want to and me and Benji don't spend all the time talking over each other. Um, and I'm joined today by a guest I'm very excited to talk to um, because, as you know, kind of our theme here at The Daily Magician is all about thinking differently. Um, and I'm excited for this podcast because I think it really hits that right on the nose. Um, I'm joined by, a, actually, I didn't even ask how to say your second name properly, but I'm going to say John Gas- Gaspard. Is that correct? John Gaspard works. John Gaspard also works, depending on who's saying. My wife says Gaspard. I say Gaspard. Yeah, I, I respond to either. Okay. Well, I'll just say John. And keep That'd it be easy. great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, for anyone that doesn't know, um, John is the author of the Eli Marks mystery series, um, which is a kind of magic based mystery series, I guess. It's not exactly magic is in it quite a lot, but it plays a key role. Uh, he's also authored uh, books such as The Sword of Mr. Stone, The Greyhound uh, of uh, the Baskervilles and The Ripperologists. Lots of lovely words to say there uh, that I hope I pronounced correctly. Um, great. Um You've also, I know, direct not also written books, but also directed um, six low-budget features, uh, and you just have a general foot in the writing um, magic creative world, I guess. <laughs> I definitely have at least one foot solidly in it. Yes. <laughs> so how, how are you doing today? How have things been for you? It's great. It's great to talk to you. As I mentioned before we started, I, I believe I've heard every episode of the podcast and it's podcasts like yours that have made it possible for a non-magician like me to write books in which the main character and several major characters are professional magicians and write them in a way that actual magicians reading them uh, do not get offended and they say Mm -hmm. yes uh, you've not only presented the magic correctly uh, without giving anything away but you've also really sort of captured the life of a professional magician, uh, someone who is not uh, on the national stage, but is uh, mm. does work in his town and uh, does trade shows and birthday parties and that sort of thing, and and has has made a life in magic. Mm. Well, I'm glad to have helped. Um, it's completely unintentional, but mm. I'm also glad that it happened. <laughs> yes. Um, so tell me. Um, the usual question that we ask at the start of the podcast can help be asked. And I'm honestly quite happy about that. Um, so instead of asking you how you got into magic, I would like to ask you, how, how did you get into writing? How did all that begin? Uh, well, my uh, uncle gave me a magic set when I was 12 and I didn't want it. I said, I want a typewriter. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> no, but the magic set at age 12 is, I know, is the common answer. Yes. Um well, I got it. Actually, it's because of my uncle. My uncle handed me a regular eight movie camera. Regular eight is uh, the precursor to Super Eight film back in the sixties and seventies. Mm-hmm. It's actually uh, a strip of uh, sixteen millimeter that's literally been cut down the middle, and it's so it's eight and eight. It's super. It's uh, regular eight. He gave me a wind up camera, and I started doing stuff when I was 10, 11, 12. Uh, and then I moved into Super Eight with sound. And in order to shoot movies that approximated the stories I wanted to tell, I had to write them. Somebody had to write what was going to happen. Now, writing might mean, you know, not actually putting it on paper, but coming up with the story and then executing, getting the shots you needed. And from that, I sort of fell into writing and into screenwriting uh, and continued to make low-budget movies uh, well, up until a few years ago, uh, in various mm-hmm. formats from Super 8 Sound to what was called uh, three-quarter inch U-Matic cassettes back in the 70s to 16 millimeter to digital beta to the current DV. And in every instance, I've uh, either written the script or co-written the script. So I really, uh, I've really always been a writer of some kind and had always planned at some point 
uh, when I got older and didn't want to lug film equipment around as much anymore to see if I could uh, write a novel and sort of stumbled mm -hmm. into the mystery genre and really stumbled into, hey, I think my, my lead character is a magician because I'm not a magician. Hmm. So how did that happen? How, how did, I mean, I think it's quite, it leads quite on. How, how did you pick your main character as a magician? <laughs> well, <clears throat> um, I was a big fan of a, of a, a writer based in New York named Lawrence Block. And Lawrence Block has mm -hmm. several different mystery series that he's written. He's written about Matthew Scudder, who's a retired policeman. Uh, he's written about Keller, who's a hitman. And he's written a series of light mysteries about Bernie Rodenbar, who is a burglar. And all the books have the word burglar in the title somewhere. Um, and I enjoyed the books and I thought that's, that's what I need is I need a light uh, framework for a character who sort of stumbles into mysteries. Uh, I wonder what he could do. And it occurred to me that I knew a lot of magicians. I know more magicians uh, at that time. I knew more than the average person. Of course, the average person doesn't know any. So if I yeah. knew one, I'm ahead of them. <laughs> but because I worked in corporate entertainment uh, for companies and, and did shows for companies and produced things, uh, and helped bring on talent. I, over the years, have, have met and worked with all kinds of performers, many of which were magicians, and some of them had turned out to be friends. And I found them to be, uh, as you know, magicians are pr pretty interesting people. Um, there's a certain level of obsession that is required. Uh, there's a certain level, level of cynicism because you're lying to the audience, and that kind of makes you sort of cynical sometimes because some, some magicians don't like the audience because being so stupid, falling for my silly tricks. Um, there's just a lot of nuance to a magician character. So I thought, all right, I will, I will uh, create this character, Eli Marks, mid-30s. Um, he lives in Minneapolis, which is where I live. Uh, he's going to grow up in a magic store uh, on Chicago Avenue in Minneapolis. There wasn't one there, but I made that up. Uh, and I'm going to give him a great teacher. I'm gonna, he's going to be an orphan. He's going to live with his Uncle Harry, who is essentially, if you could combine uh, Jay Marshall and Eugene Berger, he has that sage element, but he also has the has done everything, been everywhere, kind of sarcastic edge of a Jay Marshall. So Eli is raised by this uncle and naturally falls into being a magician, uh, occasionally stumbles into uh, murder situations. Sometimes uh, he's implicated, sometimes it's a friend, sometimes he just stumbles into it and usually is able to figure out the, uh, the solution to the crime based on something he's learned about in magic. Um, in the first book, The Ambitious Card, uh, we keep coming back to the, the one ahead principle and uh, that figures quite prominently uh, in that story. So none of the books give away anything. In fact, about as much as we give away as me just saying the one ahead theory, that's about as much as people get. Um, but he couldn't do what he does if he didn't have the, the training and the understanding of being a magician. That being said, because the books are light and comic, he does get it wrong about half the time. And um, because he gets it wrong, he often finds himself in a much more perilous situation right toward the end because he has misread the clues and um, only realizes his mistake at the last second. Hmm. So... Okay, so you, I guess you started, just to jump back for a second, um, you started writing, or at least full-time writing, did you say, kind of, when you, later in your life, yeah. after your movie career, and well, it was those connections you made that inspired you, or yes. I'm just trying to get a timeline in where this all begins? <laughs> so, so I'm in my early 60s right now, I probably started this process maybe 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, of course, up until that point, I'd written a lot of screenplays. Um, some that I optioned, uh, a couple TV shows that I sold, uh, a lot of things that went nowhere, and then many that I shot myself of the nine features I worked on. I'm writing a lot of them. Plus, I've written um, corporate videos for years and years and years. So mm -hmm. I'm writing the whole time. Uh, and that helps. It helps that uh, it helps to have to have to write. It helps to have a job where um, you don't have the option not to come up with an idea because it's your job. And um, I, I remember years ago uh, in a corporate setting where we were pitching a project to a potential client, they had put out 
uh, request for proposal and they needed us to come in and pitch your ideas. And we went in and the woman who we were presenting to said, I'm so glad you're here. We put out the proposal to two companies and one of them said, uh, thanks, we don't have any ideas. And my boss turned to me and said, I didn't know that was an option not to have ideas. Uh, so when you're writing every day from that sort of setting, you have to come up with stuff. You have to be able to do it. And it makes you uh, unafraid of a blank page because you know you're going to rewrite it anyway. You're going to have to rewrite. Whatever you write down, you're going to have to rewrite. So you might as well just write down something. So that sort of attitude really helps when you're moving from uh, either you know a five-minute corporate video to uh, 120-minute screenplay to a 70 to 80,000 word novel. Uh, if, if you know that you're gonna rewrite it and you know that it's not gonna be great to begin with, it's much easier to just sit down and start it. So I had that advantage. I didn't need to be afraid of the blank page. I just sat down and, and literally, um, I didn't start with Eli Marks. I started with a book called uh, The Ripperologists, which is a, about a modern day killer who's recreating uh, rather meticulously all the Jack Ripper murders from uh, the fall of 1888, but he's doing it in present day in New York. Uh, and I got to do a lot of research on that and find out about people who are ripperologists. And as, as subsets of society go, they're not that different from magicians in their level of uh, detail and obsession. And I wrote that book and it didn't really go anywhere, which was fine because it was the first one. And then I started Eli Marks and uh, as luck would have it, found a publisher almost immediately and did for the books with them. And then they said, you know, we thought these were going to sell more. And I said, well, I thought they're going to sell more too. Um, here's some things you could do to help sell more. And they said, no, we don't think so. So I bought them back and I've written the, the next three and published them myself. So I now have control of, of all the books, which is great. Mm -hmm. uh, but if, if, I, if I hadn't, you know, had that regular eight camera when I was 11 years old and had to come up with a story because I had three minutes and 10 seconds of film to shoot, um, I wouldn't be here now because I just I'd learned how to do it just by doing it again and again and again. Hmm. It's interesting because it kind of reminds me. Well, actually, it reminds me fully of uh, a book that Benji and I like, um, "The War of Art." Um, oh yeah, great book. Yeah, and I mean, it pretty much everything you talked about is summed up in a lot more words, <laughs> but uh, the same sort of way in that book of the way of just you have to just show up and do it, and it, it is funny because. When we, when we were creating the inner circle, some of the effects for our inner circle, uh, Benji would, would sit down and, well, both of us would sit down for like five hours every morning and just try and come up with magic effects. Um, and like you said, it's like, sometimes we hear magicians say like, oh, you know, I just, this wasn't great. Like, I don't, I don't know. I just don't have any original material right now. And it's like, well, like you said, it's like sometimes you're like, I don't really have a choice. Like mm -hmm. <laughs> that yep. you have to create something. <laughs> yep, exactly. Uh, about being a professional, I suppose. It is, and it. Um, I I have the advantage, uh, and I'll say it right now: I'm not a perfectionist, and I know people who are, and it uh, it can really um, make it hard for them, because if you are a perfectionist, it's really really hard to to do something that isn't perfect, um, and I suppose as magicians, they should know. You know, it wasn't perfect when you did your first double lift um, and it took you a long time to do it. And this, the same thing is true of, of creating something. It's not going to be great the first few times. Uh, and it's, uh, I, I believe it's, uh, is it Ira Glass from This American Life we talked about? He has a great little thing. Uh, I think they posted on YouTube about learning to create like that. He said, the problem is that you, when you're starting out and you're trying to create something, you have uh, you have taste, but you don't have talent. So you know what is good because you've been raised by it and watched it and seen it and experienced it. And so you know what a good screenplay is or you know what a good magic trick is. And so when you don't create it because you don't have the, the skills yet, you get defeated because you go, well, I know mm. what's great and this isn't great. And you have to work through that. You have to look beyond it and go, uh, it is going to be, and I just need to get there. Uh, one of the advantages I have when I did novel writing was I had made feature films. I had, and by made, I mean I had written it, 
was the director, was often the DP, certainly was the editor. Um, and that's a massive project that's going to take months. Uh, and you're not going to see results for a long time. And you learn to just put your head down and go, I know I'm not going to have anything done until a year from now on this, but I need to get a shot of a hand on a doorknob right now. I need to get that right now. And I need to get the sound effect right now. And then I'll keep moving. And you just keep moving, you keep moving, you keep moving. And it's a, sometimes a long time before you see the end approaching. And it can get frustrating. It can get really, really hard. Uh, when I'm writing a novel, and I write in Word, uh, it's either a good thing or a bad thing that Word constantly tells me how many words I've written. And I know that the average novel that people are going to want to read in this genre is between 60 to 75,000 words. Um, and it's, so, it's a good thing and a bad thing that I glance down in the left-hand corner of the screen and it says, yeah, you're at 13,000, buddy. Uh, you have a long way to go. Uh, that can be frustrating. But because I know that it's a process and I know that I've made movies and I know that I've written a book before, so I can probably do it again, uh, you just put your head down and do it knowing you're, you're going to need to go back and rewrite stuff anyway, but you can't rewrite it until you at least try. I interrupt this podcast to give a brief shout out to our website, thedailymagician.com. If you haven't already signed up for our daily emails that will give you great content just like this podcast, please head over there and sign up now. That's thedailymagician.com. We promise that we won't disappoint you. Yeah, I. it's interesting because I've read a lot of books on novel writing because that's what I saying that I still do and that I really enjoy. Um, and a lot of them just talk about just the main thing is just like forming a habit of writing every day and just getting pen to paper. Um, and I don't know, it's kind of freeing when you do that, like when you're writing a novel and you're just like, okay, I'm just gonna, at least for myself, I mean, I you yeah. have way more experience than I do, but I, I find it nice to just be like, you know, I know this is going to be like, not very good, but I feel like it's a good story. <laughs> and like, I'm just going to write and write and write till at least the first drafts are done. And then you can have like some more of the fun of coming back in and making it better on the second, third, fourth, sixth. <laughs> exactly. Eight draft. Exactly. You just have to be okay with it. Um, not looking great. Uh, I right. think it, I think in Stephen King's book on writing, I think it's in that book um, or maybe somewhere else he did it. He, he put in uh, a first draft of something and by which I mean, it was only mm. a few pages of something. And then he showed what he and his editor did to it. And it was massive. I mean, I don't know who his editor was, but he or she went through uh, with a very strong red pen and just said, oh, this is too much, that's too much, get rid of this, move this around. Uh, and this is a guy who who does have a very good writing habit, maybe a little too good some days. Yeah, uh, prolific. Yes, and who can sit down and do that. I've never been a writer who works like that. I like to work things out of my head and then sit down in bursts. But I understand that some people prefer to have that sort of thing. But even someone as... Uh, successful as Stephen King still has to go back and rewrite it and rewrite it and rewrite it. Well, it's like, it's like the old adage, right? Like a good book isn't written, it's rewritten. Exactly. I mean, so, yeah. So uh, I guess tell me more about your creative process and you, you, you've talked about um, kind of you, well, you just said you write it in short bursts and you like to map out in your head. How, how did you go about kind of writing and creating Maybe just one book in particular, rather than I'm sure you've you've written a lot. So, <laughs> well, I've written but, a, yes. The, yeah. the process is kind of the same for all the Eli Marks mysteries um, because I'm not, although I enjoy reading them, I'm not what you'd call a puzzle person. I'm not someone who can mm. come up with um, this great twist. <clears throat> where uh, there's a writer named Anthony Horowitz who gives me a headache reading him because he has twist upon twist upon twist, and it is so yeah. bleeding clever. Um, it, it just, it hurts my head to, I, like to, I, I don't know how he does it. And he's also quite prolific. Um, so for me, the, the key is I need to, I need to figure out what's what before I sit down and start writing. And the what's what's are, uh, who, who gets killed? Cause it's usually a murder in this genre. Um, why did they do it? Uh, how is Eli going to figure it out? And what thematically is going on with Eli uh, in the book that is either connected to or not connected to the to the mystery? For example, in the first book, The Ambitious Card, 
Um, he's teaching a guy, uh, a guy in his 30s, his realtor. He's teaching him how to do some tricks. It's classic situation, which I'm sure anyone who has ever, as a magician, has ever tried to teach someone else how to do magic. It's, it's that process of, you know, here's what you do and you do this. And, and the, his student, uh, I'll use that term, although it's kind of not exactly a student, but anyway, this guy comes to him and says, I, I'm having trouble doing this because I feel guilty. Uh, I'm, I'm saying I'm doing one thing and I'm doing another and I'm lying and I'm not good at lying. Um, and I don't want to do that. And that's interesting because <clears throat> Eli is feeling guilty throughout the book because he's, he's falling in love with, um, this guy's ex-wife. And so he, he, the book is about guilt, magician's guilt and just guilt in general. Um, so that ties in. Uh, that becomes kind of a theme for him. Uh, in the last book in, that I just finished that came out last year, The Magic Square takes place at a magic convention. Uh, and Eli just isn't sure where he fits in magic anymore. He's kind of tired of it, but it is his job. Um, hmm. He says, you know, some days I love magic. Uh, I don't often love magicians anymore. And he's, he's not sure where he fits and what he's going to do. And the first line of the book, is uh, something like, hey, is that Eli Marks? I thought you were dead. And it's just someone he's running into at the convention. Mm -hmm. And that's the theme of the book. Uh, what's going on with Eli? Uh, how is he going to, what's he going to be at the end of the book? Is he going to still be in magic or not? And I, I got that idea from, I was just, uh, there's a great new book on Mike Nichols uh, that Mark Harris wrote. And in the book, uh, he mentions, Nichols mentions that, you know, he always tries to figure out the theme of his movies. And uh, it wasn't until after he finished the movie, The Graduate, that he realized that the theme was in the very first line. And the first line of the movie is you hear the pilots say, ladies and gentlemen, we're about to begin our descent into Los Angeles. And that's what The Graduate is about, a descent into that kind of lifestyle. So I, when I can, I'd like to try to get a theme established early. And in order to do that, because I'm not clever. And I can't just sit down and write a mystery. I've got to sit down and write an outline and figure out, you know, what are the steps of the mystery that he's trying to solve? Where are the turns? Who's the second victim? Because there's always a second victim. What does he think the solution is? Why does he think that? How does it tie in to a magic trick, which then becomes the title of the book? Uh, so, mm -hmm. you know, there can be up to eight, nine months of just kind of taking notes. And then I can sit down and write it because I know what's happening. Uh, and I pretty detailed notes for the first two thirds of the book. And I know the ending and that last third before the ending, I kind of leave loosey goosey because things are going to change and come up mm. as I go along. But it's, it's, it's as much of a process as it is. I've kind of solidified it into that. It's really cool. I just, um, I love hearing about it because I just love reading novels <laughs> and I'm like, I've been obsessed with it for a long time. I think Benji and I, maybe talked about it on a podcast. I don't know if we did, but we used to just kind of like write sentence after sentence. Our, fa our favorite hobby as kids was writing prologues for books. <laughs> maybe summarizes it. <laughs> uh, you're uh, very odd children. Yes, we were. Okay. We were very strange. Yeah. And we would just be like, oh, can we use the computer? And it, it wasn't to play Fortnite. It, or <laughs> it, was, to, it was to write prologues together. <laughs> wow. Um, but yeah, um, it's, it's, yeah, it's fascinating to me because it feels like that's the bit that I always find hard. And, and I think I just need to sit down and, and work on for myself is, is making that good plan. Cause like you say, otherwise you get to the, I don't know, the halfway through or a bit more than halfway and everything's a bit messy and a bit lost. Maybe I'm, and I'm not so much of a prolific writer either. I think I need to be more well, intelligent in my planning. Well, you know, you're not doing it wrong. Um, there, there are two schools of thought. Uh, there's uh, what are called pantsers, which is they write by the seat of their pants, and there's planners. And for Eli Marks, mm. uh, I'm a planner. I, I started a second series, and there's two books in that one that take place in a community theater. And those I decided I'm not going to uh, organize to that degree. I'm going to know what the first murder is. I don't necessarily know who the killer is. For example, in the first book in the series, which is called Acting Can Be Murder, uh, the community theater is doing their production of Arsenic and Old Lace, and the uh, executive director of the theater is showing someone around the set, showing off this beautiful set they have, and they open the window box, which is a part of every production of Arsenic and Old Lace, 
And there in the window box is a local critic who panned the show and he's dead. That's all I knew. That was chapter one. Um, and like the reader, I went through and, and you know, it, the, the book just happened in front of me and I eventually figured out who the killer was. Um, and there's a, there's a school of thought that says if you as a writer don't know who the killer is, you're not going to unconsciously reveal that uh, to the audience as you're reading as they're reading it. Um, I don't think that's necessarily true, um, but it, it, it can be fun to just, you know, get in the car and go. And that's what you're doing in a case like that. You don't know exactly where you're going. Uh, in, in this instance with, with that series, I know a lot about community theater uh, and I know a lot about arsenic and old lace. And so it was, it was fun to write. Uh, and it didn't really matter that uh, I was making it up as I went along. I, I think to the reader, it seems exactly like uh, uh, one of the other mysteries. It, it has that same cadence and that same sense of satisfaction at the end when you find out who the killer is. Hmm. So I'm interested when it comes down to the actual writing bit for you, um, how important, I don't know if you're, you probably are familiar with it, but as far as like deep work goes, um, it's a book, again, book that I'm a huge fan of by Cal Newport and talks about the importance of just completely um, focused work in creative processes and also business processes. But um, when it comes to you actually like, okay, I, I need to sit down and put pen to paper. Uh, what does that space look like for you? Do you have to like set yourself aside or can you just do it casually? Like, what does that look like? Um, I can do it pretty casually. Um, I, what often works best for me is if I know what, you know, I always know what's going to happen in the next chapter. The thing I have to write hmm. is I'll just take a long walk in the morning. And if you saw me taking a walk, you'd see a guy walking along, occasionally pulling out his phone, talking to his phone, and then continuing to walk. And, and um, the, the nature of the scene and the dialogue, I'll, I'll just get ideas for it and take notes uh, as I'm going. I'll just dictate notes and then come back and be able to write it. Uh, it's the, the best advice I ever got on writing that sort of thing, just writing in general, is from Aaron Sorkin. Uh, he didn't give it to me particularly. He says it in general. But I think if I ever met him, he would also say it directly to me, which is that in every scene, every character has an intention and an obstacle. Um, mm. And so I know in every single scene, um, it's all Eli's point of view. So it's all coming from his head. It's what he can see. It's his thoughts. It's his neuroses that are being presented on the page. He has an intention in every scene and he has an obstacle. Now, sometimes um, his intention is uh, I'm talking to my ex-wife and I'm hungry and she has uh, a bowl of hard candies on her desk. Can I get one of those without getting her mad at me because I'm supposed to be listening to her talk to me? That can be his entire intention and obstacle, while at the same time, the other character is giving us information that we need. Um, so writing scenes is pretty easy. Yeah, and I say that in quotes, pretty easy. It's, you know, it can be, it cannot be. But mm. it, if you have, if you go in knowing what he wants and what's in his way, um, and a lot of the times in these books, the thing that's in Eli's way is Eli. It's his own uh, prejudice. It's his own insecurity. It's his own neuroses. Uh, in the second book, The Bullet Catch, he has developed uh, a phobia, uh, a, in, uh, panic attacks uh, anytime he's near uh, in a high place, particularly a high place that's open, for example, a balcony on the 30th floor of an apartment, throws him into a panic attack. Um, that's an obstacle for him. His intention is, I got to get off the balcony. Uh, the obstacle is uh, I'm terrified and I can't move. Um, so once you know that about your guy, it's pretty easy to weave him through the story. And the the benefit I have of having listened to your podcast and all the magic podcasts I can find and read all the books and read all the interviews and go to conventions and have, you know, a half dozen friends who are magicians and talking to them is I kind of know what a magician might be feeling in this instance. Uh, I know, for example, that uh, in the short story, The Invisible Assistant, Eli's doing a corporate lunch show. He's the lunch entertainment. And his biggest problem right now is he cannot remember the name of the, of the woman he brought on stage. And he's already asked her her name twice and he can't remember it. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's a real problem. If you're a magician, that's a real problem. I mean, he just stops using her name. So that's his solution. 
but that's his obstacle right there. And I think what magicians like about the books is that all those obstacles are real. Uh, they're the things that um, you do run into. Uh, I, I will say when I was first, uh, when I first finished the ambitious card and was sending it out to publishers, uh, I had a response from one publisher that kind of liked it, but she said, I don't understand at the end of the book, Eli and the girl are trapped in a cave and they're suffocating. Why isn't he using his Harry Potter style magic to get out of there? <laughs> and I thought you got all the way to the end of the book. You don't understand. This is a real working magician. A and two, you don't understand that he is using magic stuff like crazy to keep them alive while they try to get out. He's mm -hmm. using everything in his pockets that he had from the kids show he just did uh, to keep them alive. And, and um, so anyway, uh, there's, you're always going to have audiences that don't understand that. Uh, anyway, so it isn't that hard to write when you have all that background with all the research I've done. I know what it's like to, to feel like a magician. And I, I, I know my original publisher said, great, we have a built-in audience, magicians, they'll buy these books. And I said, no, a magician who likes genre mysteries will probably get a bigger kick out of it than uh, mm -hmm. an average person. But a magician who doesn't read mysteries isn't going to read this book. Why would you? I briefly pause this podcast to give a shout out to the Daily Magician Tapes Collection. This is a growing collection of exclusive audio training and interviews with some of the world's best, including the magician that you're listening to right now. If you'd like to find out more about the Daily Magician Tapes, head over to thedailymagician.com slash tapes. That's thedailymagician.com slash tapes. We'll see you there. Yeah, so what does your understanding become of magicians then? Because it's, inter it's an interesting niche that not many people are really aware of until it's pointed out to them. <laughs> um, so I guess, like, obviously you became aware of it through, like, kind of what you said of like trade shows and just friends and being in that sort of world. Well, it's, it started uh, right away yeah. with the ambitious card. Um, I, like I said, I've had friends who are magicians and I've watched them perform and I've seen them practice. And uh, I have a, a friend who's a co-host of the podcast we do about the books named Jim Cunningham, who is an actor and a magician. And so I, mm. I you know, I remember I would in, in the corporate world, I hired him all the time to be an MC and that's how we met. And for a year at every event, he always had this little leather ball that he was dropping from one hand to the other, one hand to the other, one hand. He was doing a French drop or something. And I said, what are you doing? He said, I'm learning this trick uh, from this guy in Chicago. And he said, I need to do this for about a year before I really get the muscle memory on it. And he meant Eugene Berger. I didn't know who Gene was at that time. So I had that sort of mindset of, okay, these people are a little obsessive. Um, and I wanted the book to be called The Ambitious Card because I think that's a cool title. Uh, so I, I found a local magician, uh, to teach me that trick. And as luck would have it, that local magician happened to be Suzanne, uh, who's, you know, nationally known and fooled Penn and Teller. And, uh, I'm just lucky that she, you know, lives 12 miles from me and we would have lessons, uh, you know, on a Saturday afternoon at a coffee shop about 90 minutes each. And yes, I'd learned, uh, how to do a double lift or a double turnover and, we talked about it, you know, at one point, a top change would be fun. You know, I did all of that, but I also, we talked about, you know, how she got into it and how she learned and um, her version of cups and balls or her version of Matrix is different than what Al Schneider taught her and what was he like and what is it like when you go do a corporate show and um, just, you know, the kind of conversation you and I are having right now and you mm. pick up a lot, you get a real sense of what is the day-to-day -day life of uh, a magician. Um, I've directed movies forever. I've directed plays. I've directed corporate events. So I know actors and I know performers and I know that they have different lives than the average person. They, their mindset is different. It's a freelance sort of thing. You never know where the next thing's coming from. Uh, it's a different way of looking at, at working. And magicians are very much like that. So having that sort of experience and being able to chat with Suzanne uh, was a huge help. So for yourself, like, I guess it's interesting because, um, like a lot of directors and people in that sort of world do enjoy magic. It's another form of kind of like visual creation or conveying a message or whatever it might be. Like, I mean, do you, like, 
do you like magic? Like, I mean, I try, <laughs> but, like I'm just interested. Like, do you enjoy it as a hobby? Like, I'm just wondering. That's a, that is an excellent question uh, because I I would imagine there are uh, people who would write about something they don't really care about it. I do. I mm. like it quite a bit. Um, I I've learned. Um, how can I put this? You get to a point. At least I got to a point where. Um, I was seeing two kinds of magicians because I was going to conventions and I was also Hmm. going anywhere where I could to see magic. And I was seeing on the one hand, uh, Juan Tamarez. Mm -hmm. And in the other hand, someone who's just doing a blue and gold Boy Scout dinner. Um, And you see someone like Tamarez who is so gifted and has turned the craft into an art where, I mean, I remember seeing him at Magi Fest and he did a lecture afterwards and he went into great depth about how to stand and he he teased the audience quite a bit because he was doing a Mm. kind of a three card Monty kind of a thing with oversized cards and they really wanted to know how it was done. And he could tell, you know, you've been in that room with magicians. They really want to know what is it you're doing to make that card appear and disappear. And he spent maybe 45 minutes not telling us what it was. And then he told us. And the moment he told us, I went, oh, I wish he hadn't told me. Because Mm. it's so simple and it's so stupid. Um, And it was, in that case, it was better not to know. And I left, I thought, "I I don't necessarily need to know how things are done anymore. I know enough that uh, when I'm watching Fool Us uh, and and Penn is using the code stuff that he and Mike Close and Lily Johnny Thompson would come up with to explain to the magician how it is they know what it, he or she had done. That I can I can crack the code and I know what he what he means in general. Hmm. Um, in general, I can do that. But I don't want to. You know, if I'm watching uh, Paul Gertner do a card thing where he is making different words appear on the side of the deck as he's shuffling it, I don't really want to know how he did that. I. I could explore the theory, I suppose, and find out more, but he's just doing it so well that uh, Mm. you get to a point where you go, I, you know, I could, I don't really need to know. Um, When I started the series, I was thinking, well, I don't know how many books I'll do, but I'm going to learn the key trick for each book. I'm going to be that Mm -hmm. guy who can do that trick. And I learned the ambitious card and I did my own version of it and I made variations on it and I called it the ambitious dog. And I was very, very proud of it. Mm -hmm. And then years later found out that David Regal had already done it and done it far better than I had before. But I got to the second book, which was the bullet catch. And I looked into that and thought, I'm not learning that. There's there's no way I'm going to, I don't care. I don't want, I don't want to learn that. And, and so I stopped, I went, I don't need to perform magic. And that's a thing that, is coming up in the books as they go along, which in particular the the Magic Square, the last one that I wrote, and we part of the next one, is Eli coming to the understanding that, uh, as Eugene Berger says in the House of Magic, there's many rooms, and he doesn't necessarily need to be in the performing room. Uh, he can be in the room that's interested in history. He can be in the room that loves to collect posters. He can, you know, there's all kinds of different things, and. I, I came to the realization that I, I enjoy watching magic. Uh, I, when the pandemic wasn't here, Suzanne and I and Jim Cunningham produced a, a monthly magic show with great mm. talent from out of town coming in, and I loved watching it. Um, but I just don't, I don't necessarily need, I don't have that, I have to know how it's done gene anymore. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't, it's not that I don't care, it's just it, it isn't the part of it that interests me. It's, it's, the, it's the performance and not the mechanics yeah i think it's interesting because like that's something that i really liked about danny goldsmith's magic when i first started watching it it's just like i think honestly i think that good magic should have that effect on you anyway where you don't care about how it's done like right the the magician is able to bring you into that story and that place and that idea uh, to the point where you just you just want to enjoy it. You don't. You're not in a place of uh, questioning, I suppose, anymore. Where you, where you, like you said, where you need to know exactly how it's done. Exactly. We we on our podcast we we had a wonderful chat with um, John Carney, 
Uh, and one of the things that he said was about the importance of simplicity and the difference between something uh, having simplicity and being easy and that magicians don't understand the difference between the two and that he's working toward simplicity. He's working toward something that is so elegant um, where, where all the extra whatevers have been taken out of it. And as soon as he said that, I, I flash back to one of the very foundational magic events for me, which was I was in, uh, I think, Appleton, Wisconsin. This is many, many years ago. My wife and I were visiting the Houdini Museum because I'd been asked to consider writing a play about Houdini, which I hmm. decided not to do because he's not a very nice person and not that interesting. Um, but there was a magic convention that weekend. It was the first time I'd ever heard of such a thing. And so I, my wife was not interested in seeing how things were done. Um, mm. But I went to some of the, you know, the lectures and then went to the, the show that night. And there was a performer named Arden James who uh, does uh, an act that is so simple, uh, that is so honed, and he's not doing anything particularly complicated. He's doing a, a needle through a balloon. Uh, he's doing some pantomime. Uh, yet it is it is so honed and perfect, and it's that level of simplicity that John Carney talked about that it kind of set a standard for me. And I, that's what I'm always looking for is show me someone who has who's done you know that level of of work on their thing, like a Tina Leonard doing Mop Man or Rob Zabrecki. Uh, someone who's put that much focus into just getting mm -hmm. all the details right and it isn't easy um because as tina leonard told me she said if it was easy um we're not doing our job it's it it got it can be hard to us but it has to look easy to the audience but they've gone to the degree of doing all the necessary work to create something that is so simple and so beautiful and that's sort of the standard that i look for now mm. I'm interested then in writing and magic, which are both quite, I don't know, things that you do alone a lot of the yeah. time. Yep. They're quite isolating, oftentimes isolating hobbies or um, passions. Um, what have you learned from either of them that can, you've taken into like everyday life or things that you, you know, what, what have they inspired you to do or what have they inspired you not to do? <laughs> Well, yeah, I guess what have you learned from them? <laughs> well, I've learned um, not to learn magic because I'm not really interested in performing. I'm not mm -hmm. in that room of the house of magic. <laughs> um, I can do one trick, which is uh, Max Maven's Boave, um, mm. which is if you're doing book signings and you have a series of books about a magician, it doesn't hurt if you can do some magic. Um, mm. And I did for a while have, you know, I had complicated stuff with, color changing decks and, you know, uh, elaborate things. And with Brave, I can tie it immediately into the book because the book has uh, King of Diamonds on the cover and I can talk about King of Diamonds and that's the one they pick. And it, you know, and it takes a minute and a half or whatever to do and I can instantly reset it. Um, and I have two different versions in my pocket. So if someone wants to see it again or the show, have me show their friend, it's a different card that ends up turning up so it you know it, it seems very very magical uh, and that's really all i need i don't uh i enjoy seeing what's new out there and i enjoy seeing people who are really great doing it but i don't need to do it that's what i've learned i guess i guess maybe my question more specifically would be from like the art of like writing i guess like what what have you learned from, I mean, just writing or magic or whatever that you apply in your daily life that's outside of magic and outside ah, of okay. writing. What if I learned that I apply in my daily life? You know, it's sort of a, a, a reverse of that. It's the things I learned in my daily life about... Um, right, coming to the others. <laughs> yeah, it, it really, you know, about persistence and work and uh, taking it easy when you need to take it easy and the things that are important and the things that aren't important. I Because I publish the books myself um uh my, my education on magic continues you know i listen to your podcast and i listen to shazam and 
several other ones, Scott Wells, because uh, you're, you're always learning stuff. But the other things that I'm listening to and learning about are about publishing and independent publishing. Uh, and like anything else in the world, there's a way to take the thing you're doing and turn it into a competition and to have a scoreboard of some kind. Um, and it's, it's, I think that can take all the fun out of it. Um, if it is your living, uh, either as a novelist or a magician, you know, you have to make a living at it and you have to, it has to pay, but it isn't for me. And it isn't for most people with magic. It's a hobby. It doesn't have to pay. It does. You know, we prefer that we not lose money on it, but it's okay if it doesn't make money. And so as I'm learning more about independent book publishing, there's this huge undercurrent that happens all the time about how many books have you sold? How much are you making in each mm. book? How, you know, it, it becomes, you've got to hit this amount of money. You've got to do this. And to learn to just step back from that. Um, years ago, the comedian Steve Martin said something that I remember to this day. He said, one of the benefits of getting older is you can just say no. And you can just, people say, hey, let's try this new thing. You say, you can just shut the door and say no. And it's hard to do that when you're, you know, trying to publish your own books. But it, I'm always trying to say, no, I, I'm not going to get caught up in, uh, am I selling the most number of books? Hmm. Uh, am I hitting these numbers? Because that's not what it's about. It's about, I enjoy writing these stories about this guy who is very much like me. Um, in a few years when my memory has diminished, I will sit down and read the books and enjoy them thoroughly because I won't remember them and I'll, I'll enjoy the sense of humor there. And I enjoy when people email me and say, I love the book or when's a new one coming out or um, thanks for the podcast. It's so much fun. That's great. And that's what I'm working toward. Uh, it, it's just hard not to get into that undertow of, oh, and I have to be making a ton of money because I don't. And that's what I've learned is just, uh, you know, take your eye off that and just put your eye on writing something you like and getting it out there. I like that. Um, so yeah, I, I'm interested. What books are you reading right now inside and outside of magic? I saw that you, maybe you were picking up Bobo's again. Um, yes. But, um, what are you What's inspiring you right now? What do you? What, what would you like to talk to people about right now? What, what's something that you're reading right now that you're like, wow, this is cool, and I want to share it? <laughs> um, <clears throat> well, I, I, boy, that's a very good question. I, I just reread some Agatha Christie's just because I wanted to kind of get that sense again, mm -hmm. her ability to put a bunch of people in a room, um, and and walked away a little bit discouraged and went, hmm, that's, I don't know, that that wasn't, that wasn't that interesting in the. The solution was a little mm. opaque and not really fair. Um, so I wasn't not encouraged by that at all. But I was just revisiting uh, with my podcast co-host Steve Martin's book uh, called Born Standing Up, which as memoirs go is pretty darn good. And for anyone interested in performing, uh, I recommend that book. I've also been rereading on the magic side, Ken Weber's uh, Maximum Entertainment 2.0, which... Uh, is a great book for anyone putting on a show of any kind. I, I realize he's focused it on magicians, but there's just so many good things in there for anyone who's going to stand up in front of an audience. Mm -hmm. And and the last book I read uh, was uh, Ryan Kane's uh, Out of Stock, about stock lines in magic acts, which is something I want to be thinking about Eli dealing with. Uh, and it really is a good book to read right after rereading uh, Maximum Entertainment 2.0 because it's sort of hmm. like the thing Ken didn't dive into that it, uh, that Ryan did that just kind of went into more depth on how to how to get those stock lines out. Nice. Okay. Well, I think it might be nearing... I, I, I could talk about this forever, um, but unfortunately, <laughs> my wife might be a bit mad because I have to go pick her up from the train station. Um, but... Um, <laughs> I, um, yeah, I guess is a final question. Um, yeah. So my, my dad made independent movies for a while and, and that's why I kind of grew up with going to like film festivals in Temecula and, and things uh -huh. like that. And I think it's a really fun world. Um, it is. 
how do you but it's also it's also pretty unforgiving like you said if you don't keep in mind that you're doing it for you and for your own creativity yep. yep um how do you stay energetic and how do you keep on going and even later in age right where you start get to, oh is there any point in me doing this now maybe not so much not novel writing but with filmmaking i know it can be discouraging to think you know you know when's when's my moment to make et or whatever you know yeah um how do you how do you keep doing it and why have you you kept continuing to create well it's it's similar to the the last answer about um avoiding that undertow uh and it's bigger mm. uh making independent films i mean when i was starting out i paid for everything myself pretty much always paid for everything myself right. but i did do a couple features that cost each cost about thirty thousand dollars which isn't much but it is if you're a normal person that's a lot of money yeah. um and there's that um onus there's that a sword hanging over your head the entire time of I have to get their money back for them. They need to get their money back. And in the case of those films, one of them did repay the investors a little bit. The other one didn't. Um, and I kind of swore from that point on, you know, I'm not going to do this if the end result is I'm, I'm going to feel unhappy that I, I've got to spend the next 20 years trying to get back an investor's money. And the tools of filmmaking are cheap enough that I can do it and not need to make money back. Like I say, it never hurts to cover your costs, but the gear isn't that expensive anymore. Um, the people are always thrilled to be part of a movie pro project. They know I'm not making any money on it. And if you go in without having that, um, being tied down with an anchor of, I have to make money on this. It's a lot more fun. It's just a whole lot more fun. Now, some people, I suppose, need that in order to finish it. Um, I never had that issue. I was always, if I started a project, I finished it. Um, but some people need that gun to their head that says you have to finish this because there's other people's money involved. But I never had that. And it, it just makes it, uh, it makes the whole process much more fun, primarily because you're not dealing with that last hurdle, which is distribution, which is the worst part of independent film production because it's totally out of your hands and it is entirely based on um, the product you've created and, um, and what they think they can get out of it. I remember talking to a friend of mine who's a fine filmmaker and he spent mm. a lot of time working on a very personal uh, feature film excellent feature film with uh, uh, good everything, uh, script, production values, actors, everything. And he brought it to LA to show to someone's agent or something. And it was a small screening room with a bunch of agents. And after about five minutes, they were all looking at their phones because they, they went, oh, there's nothing here for me. I can't sell this. I can't make any money off of this. And that's kind of a pretty heartbreaking sort of feeling of mm. I've done all this work and it's a product that they have no interest in. Well, if you haven't got investors, that's not a problem. Uh, you can, you know, I made a movie called Ghost Light, which took place in a community theater and whatever cost was involved, I incurred for the props and the, I already had the gear, had the lights, had the camera, had the sound, edited it myself. It's never needed to make money yet it, it uh, because of streaming now, it's picked up by a lot of streamers. Doesn't make a lot of money, no. Um, but it does. It is seen by a lot of people, and a lot of people visit the Facebook page about it, and I get nice notes about it. And that's really all I'm looking for. I don't need to worry about a profit statement at the end of the year. Uh, and having that part of the equation gone makes it so much more enjoyable. It's just, it's the best. And the same thing with independent publishing. If I'm not worried about money all the time it's a fun process what advice would you give people to people to people that are worried about money or do have to worry about money <clears throat> what advice would i give them yeah um the are we talking independent film or yeah or just both i mean okay. it seems like i don't know maybe i'm putting them wrongly in the same place um, um well but it seems there's, like there's more cost involved there's more cost involved in independent film right the yeah. thing i'd point out to them uh is that you've been lied to. Uh, 
you've been lied to for years and years and years and years and years because you've been told uh, Kevin Smith went out with $27,000 and made clerks and he brought it to the IFFM and Bob Hawk saw it and um, they took it to Sundance or whatever and he got a career. Well, mm. yes, that did happen, but I was at that uh, IFFM that year with my movie Beyond Bob, which is as good a movie as Clerks, certainly a funnier movie than Clerks. Uh, I was there with a hundred other features, 100 other features. And if you look through the catalog from that fall, you would recognize, well, I would recognize two names, Beyond Bob, my movie, and Clerks. You would recognize none of the names. But the lie that is told to filmmakers is, you see, Kevin Smith went out and he did this and now he has a career. But they, it's like saying we cured cancer but we're not telling you about all the people who died. We're just showing you the ones who lived. And that's the wrong way of looking at it. Uh, the number of features that are never released is thousands upon thousands upon thousands, A. And two, Kevin Smith did not get a career out of clerks. Kevin Smith worked like crazy after clerks and has a career because he works all the time. Um, the one movie's not going to do it for you. You're not going to just do that and be fine. So that's, those are the two lies that if it's sold, you're done. And every movie that is made gets sold. It just isn't. There's hundreds of movies that are mm. not released that have spent a whole lot more money than I ever spent on Beyond Bob, uh, where they just never saw the return. And I've um, I've seen so many you know, filmmakers would send me links to their movies and they're um, well-produced, beautiful movies that just never got distribution. And that's going to happen. So um, my advice is do it as cheaply as possible and don't need to make money. And you're going to be a lot happier. You're not going to be the guy who emailed me and said, I wish I had listened to you because I've lost my house now. Like, well, don't do that. That's don't, Please don't do that. Okay. It seems well, like kind of a downer. Yeah, I'm like, um, <laughs> should we... Uh... <laughs> Is there a way we can move past losing your house? I mean, I know that wasn't meant to be the intention of it. No, it wasn't. Um, but the, the point <laughs> is, um, if you're doing it to make money, uh, there's a lot of other people doing that, and they're probably better and smarter and meaner than you are. If you're doing uh, your magic or your movie making because you love it uh, and you can do it without breaking the bank, then just keep doing it. Just keep doing it again and again and again because it's the process that's fun. Uh, and you end up with a movie that you like and it'll show up at an occasional festival or because of streaming or you put it up on Vimeo or YouTube and people watch it. That's great. That was the idea in the first place. Make something that you can show to people and uh, get a reaction of some kind out of them. And uh, I just prefer to do that uh, without the financial risk. Yeah. It's interesting because Benji and I talk about this a lot, which is like kind of like, I mean, it's also just a life principle. I think a lot of people have said it and it's in a lot of media. It's nothing new, but the sort of like journey over destination mm -hmm. and how, you know, even if you were to become, I don't know, you know, I mean, e even in a future where you become, I don't know, let's say your series takes off and is number one bestseller for five years, right? You still be doing similar things to what you're doing now. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, and so it's like, there's no mysterious end place where everything is perfect and you know you you don't have to really do anything because it's the same process just in a different place and so i always try and remember like just process you know just journey of a destination and yep. just enjoy where you are right now because if you can't then you're not going to enjoy it when you get there anyway exactly um, so. that's much more positive than talking about losing a house <laughs> no, I <didn't. laughs> uh, that, that wasn't my intention in saying that. But uh, <laughs> I, I, yeah, unless you have anything to add, I think maybe that maybe that isn't a nice little uh, bow to put on everything that we've talked about. Um, this has been really fun. Like I said, I, I enjoyed the podcast, and and it uh, it podcasts like yours helped me to not only um, get the magic right in the books, but also. Uh, now that we're doing our own podcast about the book, uh, kind of taught me um, this is what a good podcast sounds like. Because <laughs> uh, uh, there's ones out there that aren't good, and um, so it's 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 I'm learning from the best. 
Well, I appreciate you saying that. <laughs> um, I, I, I don't know if I'd say the things about myself, but I'm very happy for you to say that. <laughs> Uh, but yeah like i said it's, it's been an absolute pleasure um of course if, if there's anything that you obviously i'll shout out of course go get your books they seem like they're super cheap i mean like especially if you if you like if you're okay reading on kindle yep um, there's like even like a sale on right now i thought i saw uh it comes and goes yeah but generally they're like under five bucks each yeah which is nothing i mean it's like the price of it's like the price of like a, a big pack of chewing gum. So and and I will just do the little um, plug yeah, here that if please. if you like audiobooks, listen to our podcast behind the page, the Eli Marks podcast, because our plan is to uh, we're, we're halfway through our first season, and each episode is one chapter from the audiobook of the Ambitious Card, and then an interview with a magician or somebody talking about uh, an element of that chapter. So. The podcast is free, and it, if you just wait, if you just binge through it, as some people have written me, they are, you can hear the entire first book in the series for free by the end of season one. And we'll just mm -hmm. keep doing that with, we'll have seven seasons or maybe eight seasons. So there's an eight book by then where you can hear the, the audiobook for free uh, throughout the, the season. That's awesome. Yeah. And well, obviously, I'll, I'll put links down below if you guys. Uh, just check the description of this podcast and you should see links. And also I'm sure I'll be emailing about it as well. Um, so there's that, but yeah, it's, if there's, if people want to reach you, where is it best for them to try and contact you? Just go to Eli Marks mysteries.com. That's E L I Marks M A R K S mysteries.com. Uh, you can see all the books there and um, see the podcast there. And there's a contact button. Just hit that and reach out. Okay, perfect. Well, it's been a it's been a real pleasure, John. Um, I appreciate having you on. It's, it's it's been fun to hear all of your your stories and uh, talk about stuff that was magic focused, but not solely magic. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, sir. I, like I said, I love the podcast, and I really appreciate being on it. Thank you. <laughs>